Hey, what's up, everybody? This is The Greatest Show on Dirt coming to you live from the Sweet Bee Studios. I'm your host, Quentin, and today is a solo episode. I haven't done I haven't done a solo episode in probably six weeks. I'm so excited for this. So much has happened since I've last got on the mic. It's uh, been a hell of a time. Listen, my, my baseball and softball adult leagues, those are going really good. But I am taking an ass kick in these days. I hurt so bad. I didn't realize how out of shape I was, you know? I don't know if I need to drink more Gatorade or booze, you know what I mean? Like, because I need to dehydrate, but at the same time, I need to drink the pain away. My right arm hurts. I've always joked in the past that I thought I needed Tommy John surgery. Is a hundred percent sure I need Tommy John surgery. <laughs> it feels like my arm's gonna break in half. I'm so fucking old. I'm over this, man. Yeah, I think that's what I'm gonna have to do. You know, because. So I'm in the adult softball league right now, and it's not a beer league, it's a church league. But I'm so close to sneaking booze in my bat bag because my arm and my quads hurt, you know? Like, I feel like I just got to go the old world method and get a little bit of whiskey in the system, you know? Because with outside wounds, it's rubbing alcohol, and with inside wounds, it's drinking alcohol. And these are sort of inside and outside wounds so i figured i'll just go the drinking alcohol portion of it but damn man it's uh it's been such a blast dude i say this every episode when i start talking about playing ball but if you get the chance if you haven't played ball in a long time get out there and do it you know it's nerve-wracking at first like i'm still nervous every game i play like so nervous like I pissed four times right outside the dugout in last in uh, the game I had last week. I was it faces the woods, so I wasn't peeing in front of people. But you know I like to pee outside, so it's what it is. But when I get nervous and hyped up, I have to pee a lot. And dude, I still do. It's so fun and it's crazy because this is just an adult softball league. But I get so nervous and excited before every game. And I would just encourage you to if you haven't played ball for a while but you're into sort of, you know, you're really into baseball and the nostalgic aspect of it, get out there and do it. Like, it's it's one of the most fun I've had in a long time. Like, my elbows are skinned up every damn week. I'm I'm trying to figure out my batting stance. Me and a buddy went to the batting, or to the pitching machines a few weeks ago, hit off a 70-mile-an-hour pitching machine, and I actually made contact, and I was shocked. But even that was so fun. I remember being a kid, there was a... Uh, the batting cages were right by uh, this miniature golf place, which we called it Goofy Golf. And so when I started dating my wife, I was like, you want to go Goofy Golf sometime? And she's like, what's Goofy Golf? And I'm like, it's like Goofy Golf, you know? But everyone else calls it Miniature Golf. But dude, I was a kid. It was called the Marion Batting Cages. And I remember just before games, after games, or hell, sometime on a Tuesday afternoon, you know, my dad would take me to the batting cages. And it was just so, so fun. And I love going to batting cages. It's just such a blast. Like, it takes me down memory lane for sure. Like, I'm pretty close to, I think I'm going to plan a giveaway to give away, like, a baseball bat and a Tanner Tee. Because one of the things that got me back into hitting again was there's a company called Tanner Tee. And they're not a sponsor of the podcast. I just got it because I heard it was a good tee. And I ordered that tee and, you know, like, during work, like, on a lunch break because I'm working from home. If I want to go hit some baseballs, I'll just go out there and treat it like a workout and just, you know, get my bucket of balls and my tea and just smoke balls, you know, in the summer heat. And it just feels so damn good. Like, do you remember being a kid 
And it'd be like during summer vacation and you and your buddies would just stay outside all day, get out of the house about 7 a.m. And it would just be so damn hot out, like drinking Gatorade out of glass bottles, going home and drinking water out of those old like Tupperware containers. And there's something just about being outside in the dead ass heat of summer. No breeze. You can hear the crickets in the woods. And that's what it reminds me of to go out there and just hit off the tee. So I'm going to try to work on that giveaway because... You know, I was like I said, I was nervous to get back into baseball and sort of play it because I felt like it was, you know, like it's very common for adults to play like football and basketball pickup, but not a lot baseball. You know, I sort of felt like I would be a weirdo if I went to the baseball fields and there were like some little kids that wanted to play on the field, partially because I felt like that they would hit better than me. But also, like, I sort of felt like it just wasn't anything adults did, you know, and so I was always like self-conscious to go play baseball because I thought I sucked. But it's one of the most just relaxing, fun things to do. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't hit any baseballs in a while, just get a tee and get some baseballs and get a bat and go. You know, it's I've been on a huge baseball bat kick lately. Like, I've been ordering a bunch. The only bats I had were I had my old Easton Little League bat and an Easton Reflex bat that I used in high school. But otherwise, like, I didn't have any bats. Like, the only baseball bats I had growing up where I've got my Louisville Slugger T-ball bat. I had the black and gold Easton. I had my Easton Reflex. Honestly, I think that's all I remember. But I've been I ordered a couple old, I say a couple, like four old school Easton B5s, the green Easton. And I swung I swung uh the green Easton a couple weeks ago off the tee. Dude, that sucker launches baseballs to the stratosphere. So badass. And I've just been, so in outfitting my podcast studio, it's pretty much a lot of nostalgic stuff in here. I've got skateboard, I got skateboard on the wall, a bunch of starting lineups, some old pictures, my old ball gloves, like old hats, like the old mesh hats. You know, I've been collecting some of those. Get that dead stock on eBay, like mesh hats with the green bill from the 80s. And so I've been starting to buy some of those old school baseball bats too. And it's just like, I've tried to put into words why I like baseball bats so much and I can't really do it, but I love, love baseball bats. Like during the day, I'll just go in the garage because I put a hung a bat rack in the garage too. And I'll just go out there and swing a baseball bat. And it's like, there's just nothing better than, you know, a baseball bat. Like, I just love to swing them and, you know, go through the stances and all of that sort of stuff. And it feels good to hold a baseball bat. Like, it takes me back. I remember in Little League, I had this uh, navy blue Easton bat back. And I remember just sliding my baseball bats in there so carefully. And, you know, taking those baseball bats and getting on my bike and going up to the sand lot to meet my buddies and things like that. And a baseball bat to me is like, it's sort of like a time machine, right? It's it's a time capsule that was buried in the backyard, you know, and I'll even it's the aluminum ones that'll do it for me somewhat because like I like the sound of the aluminum bat and it's, you know, what you played with in Little League in high school and it's just so fun and it's, you know, it the baseball, it's just like a glove takes me back like the smell of the glove, you know, when you put your hand in a glove and you take it out and it smells like leather and sweat like that I love and I've talked a lot about baseball gloves. But damn, man, a baseball bat is a good thing. And I'll even say this. If you don't have a baseball bat or your baseball bat is somewhere in storage, get that sucker out. Like I swing my bat on a daily basis, sort of like a person takes a vitamin. (laughs) You know, like I've got bats spread out all over the house. 
Like I've got baseball bats in my podcast studio. I've got baseball bats in the garage. I got a baseball bat next to my bed, which you would think that was for protection, but it's really because if I get out of bed, my bathroom door is right there and there's a big mirror for the master bathroom. And so I'll just roll out of bed and the bat's not for protection. It's so I can take swings in front of the big mirror in front of my bathroom. And then I've got a baseball bat in the entryway of my house. So when guests walk in, the first thing they see is a baseball bat, but that too is not for protection. That is for Julio Franco. (laughs) The baseball bat upstairs is Barry Bonds. And then the garage baseball bats are like Pete Rose, Ricky Henderson, Ken Griffey Jr., Ron Gann, Juan Gonzalez. (laughs) But gives you a baseball bat. But yeah, if I work out the giveaway, and I would just buy this stuff myself, right? I don't even really care, but I just want to spread the joy of baseball and It's, you know, joining this adult softball league has been one of, you know, the best things ever. Like I ordered an old school set of stirrups that I'm going to wear to my next game. And like those stirrups, dude, take me back. There was this, this sporting goods store that was open for like 20 years in my hometown. It was called Keeney Sports. And it was right next to the coast to coast hardware store that I would go with, with my dad and his S10, you know, getting in that S10, he's smoking cigarettes listening to Creedence Clearwater Revival. And I remember going to the hardware store with him and he would get the screws and I would put them in the little like manila envelopes and count them up and stuff. And then it was a sporting goods store right next door. So, you know, every season when ball comes up, you know, go there, get your baseball pants because you've grown a foot (laughs) and, you know, get your baseball stirrups, Mizuno cleats, you know, that's what I liked. And I remember every season, well, every two years, you know, when you were in Little League, you'd have to get different color stirrups because you would be on the, you'd have like two years of Mustang, two years of Bronco, and you would have a different team every year. But I always loved getting new stirrups and putting them on because they were always like the bright colors. Like I remember having like bright orange ones and bright yellow ones. And I don't mean the stirrup socks. I mean the actual stirrups like Vince Coleman, like get those stirrups. And pull those suckers high and thin as you can because that means that you're built for speed, right? It's time to steal some bags when you have the stirrups on. And damn, that was just a good time. But just being in the dugout, you know, getting dirty, it's been so fun. We had a double header on this past Monday night. And the first game was at 745 and the second game was at 9 o'clock. And we didn't leave the field. The second game didn't end until probably because they have an hour time limits on them. And we'll only play seven innings because that's the get through because the league will play like five or six games on Mondays and on Thursdays. And I was sitting, I was in the outfield. So I played right field during the first and second game, actually. And I'd hustle out there, you know, when the next inning would come up. And I remember just being out there like the overhead lights were on. It backs up to the woods so you can hear like frogs and crickets. And when you get that far out, like it's sort of just so quiet and it's light because the field's lit up, but then when you look off in the distance, it's dark over there. And that reminded me of, you know, playing Bronco ball back in the day. And it was like, that's how it would be like if you had a late game and, you know, a lot of the other, you know, fields would be empty because you would be one of the last ones to play. And I just love being on a baseball field at night. Like it is so fun, such a blast. And, you know, I can't explain it, but you look up and see the moon in the dark sky, then the lights are shining down on you. And, you know, it starts to cool off a little bit. And I was just so thankful to be out there, you know, and think of all the things that, you know, baseball's taught me, you know, the sacrifice that my parents, I mean, it goes through the same stuff, right? Like I say this stuff every time, but it's a joy to feel those things. You know, I talk about them a lot, but it's just so damn fun, you know, and 
you know, getting out there, running for some balls and diving for some balls. It was a blast. But, you know, that's how it would be. Like, those late games were so fun. And I remember getting home and there always being like bugs on the back porch because it would be so late, like past 10 o'clock. And if we were really dirty, you know, mom would make us take off our clothes. You'd have to strip down on the back porch because she's not going to let you in the house. And those were just good times, man. Just coming home dirty. And sometimes, you know, if you play like on a school night and you get home late, like it felt really cool because maybe you were up a little later than you normally would have been. And, you know, you felt like a big leaguer, you know, playing under the lights and there's just something peaceful about it. And, you know, just being outside late in general, like that's what you sort of want to do as a kid is stay outside as late as you can get. And when you can sit outside and play baseball after it gets dark, like that's fun because, you know, if we were just playing sandlot ball, you know, by the school, if it get dark, you know, you had to come home. But to be able to play, to be able to stay outside past dark, like that's just a blast. But I can't really explain it well, but I like definitely to be under those lights playing ball. Just getting on a ball field in general is just so, so fun. You know, running out of the dugout, taking your spot out in center. It's really a good time. So, yeah, if you, you know, haven't played ball in a while, you know, you can usually find adult softball leagues like on Facebook, you know, through the county. Or if you go to a church or if you don't go to church, just, you know, you've got to not cuss in the church league. I popped out on Monday and I think I must have yelled shit or fuck really loud. I'm not too sure. But the ump comes up to me, the home plate ump goes, I don't want to hear that again. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like it's just a knee-jerk reaction. I forget like it's in a softball league, you know? Like I was leaning against my car smoking a cigarette before the game. I was like, oh I gotta put this out before someone sees me, right? Yeah, dude. I went to pick up my buddy Chris um before a game a couple weeks ago. And I didn't realize that I was doing it at the time, but he walked out of his house and noticed it. But I sort of started a ritual to where I got to smoke a cigarette before the game, you know, trying to be hardcore like, you know, Keith Hernandez or Charlie Huff or Kent Takulve, you know, they're smoking cigarettes before they come into the game. And I'm like, well, I need a new superstition. I need to get a hot streak. So let's get this cigarette in my system. So I park in front of his house, send him a text. I'm like, hurry up and come outside. So I get out and I start doing lunges because I got to do lunges because my quads have been tightening up, you know, just like Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton. You know, you're really big time power hitters. You're really muscular guys like me and Giancarlo Stanton. Our quads tighten up on us. So I'm out there doing my lunge stretches and I light a cigarette, right? And I'm taking practice swings with my bat all simultaneously at the same time. And all of a sudden, Chris comes out and he goes, are you really smoking a cigarette? And I guess, yeah, I am. And so he was like, so you're in front of my house doing lunges, swinging a baseball bat and smoking a cigarette before the game. And I'm like, that's it. That's exactly what I have to do. So the superstition's already been started. So our last adult softball game is this coming up Monday. And I have to do that exact same thing because when I did lunges and smoked a cigarette and took practice swings all at the same time, my first time up, I had a rocket double to the gap. And who am I to challenge destiny? You know, it's God's plan. And if it's meant to be, like, I have to do the same thing every time. But I figure if that fails, I'm just going to throw in a big water red man and see what happens. <laughs> because that's something I would be able to hide during the game, I think, you know, because it is a church league. You really got to, you know, button up and be a good kid. You can't cuss. You can't smoke. You can't have chew at all. But I figure I could slide some in and see what happens, which would mean I would probably be throwing up at right field and <laughs> halfway through the first inning. People would be like, what's wrong with you, man? I'd be like, I don't know, man. I'm just shaking. I don't feel good. You know, and I would just barf. And then, but 
if I chew, barf in the outfield, and then come in and hit another rocket double, guess what I'm doing the next inning? I'm going to go to right field. I'm going to barf and see if I hit another double because you got to stick with the plan no matter what. But I've been doing a lot of training for baseball because my tournament comes up in September, and I'm really excited for it. Like I said, I went to the pitching machines. I was hitting 70. I ordered another new wood bat. So I got two brand new wood bats. I got one for power and one for contact, <laughs> which means I've got my Barry Bonds bat. I like to call it my Ron Gant bat because Ron Gant's sort of like my guy. You know, the TBS days, 705 or 735, whenever the time was. Like Ron Gant's my guy. Fred McGriff, man, I like those Atlanta Braves sluggers, you know. Like I'm a Barry Bonds fan. But when I was a kid, like my favorite sluggers were like Juan Gonzalez, Ron Gant, Dave Justice, Fred McGriff, Sammy Sosa, Frank Thomas, Griffey, of course, Jay Buhner. Don't sleep on Jay Buhner, man. Buhner had a good stance, dude. And so like that's my power bat. We'll call my power bat. Let's call my power bat Ron Gant, even though Ron Gant's built for speed. But my contact bat, we're calling that Vince Coleman because I ordered the stirrups. I can pull those high, and that's strictly a contact bat. And one of the things that shocked me is I can still run kind of fast, but after one full game of running fast, I'm down for about three days. <laughs> but so I was, um, I don't know if I was Googling something. I don't remember what it was, but there's a place called D1 or something like that, and it's a training facility. And it looks like parents take their kids there so they'll play sports well. And one of the sports they cover is baseball. And it's, it's some serious shit. It looks like the NFL combine in there. They got them running sprints, running in between cones, running in between ropes. I mean, it looks like an episode of American Gladiators. Remember watching American Gladiators on Saturday? And playing American Gladiators for Nintendo? Listen, that's what this looks like. Serious stuff. And I'm like, there's no way my dad would have ever taken me to a place called D1. Listen, this is what it was like with my dad. If I'm in, I'm in Mustang League, right? I don't hustle the first, right? Do you know what happens? Do you think my dad's going to look and say, man, you know, he hit a slow dribbler to the pitcher and didn't hustle the first. I had to take him to D1. No, his first thought is, this motherfucker is going to run laps around the pony field. I don't care if he's eight years old and five foot two. He's going to get to work, and this is how we're going to train him. It's 110 heat index outside. I'm not exaggerating. I'm in southern Illinois. It's like the devil's armpit, right? You're wearing the air. 110 heat index. No exaggeration. The Channel 3 News, they're giving out information at five o'clock on the telltale signs of a heat stroke and how you should be careful when you go outside. And my dad is making me run laps around the pony field. He's smoking a Marlboro under a tree, eating a honey bun, yelling hustle at the top of his lungs. Because when we get done, right, if I live through these laps around the pony field, I got to go home and mow the yard. <laughs> And he doesn't care. Listen, if it's like the Oregon Trail of baseball, right? It is a daunting task. This pony field looks ginormous to me right now. And if I pass out, right, he's not calling D1. He's not even calling the ER, man. <laughs> you know, he's just going to continue to yell hustle. But here's the thing. If I don't get up, buddy, listen, I'm not worried about 
stripping down naked on the back porch after a baseball game. I'm worried about living. I may never see another episode of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles again, right? So I finally get done running. I mean, this is just crazy to me. Like, I'm a child. I have an 8 p.m. bedtime, right? But my dad, he doesn't give a shit, right? If I pass out in the field, it's nothing to him. This is a man that grew up with an outhouse in his backyard. In his backyard. That's a tough dude. If he had to piss or take a shit, he had to go outside, man. That was the life they were living, right? That's that's plumbing. That's a tough man right there. Listen, his motto when he was a kid, he told me this story once. He goes, listen, when I was a kid in the McCree household, you either got better or you died. Looks at me dead in the eyes. He, this isn't a dad joke to him. This is real life. Listen, when my dad was 10 years old, he was coughing up blood for three weeks. His tonsils dissolved in his mouth as his throat swelled up because he was afraid to tell his dad he was sick. So when he says you either get better or you die, that's real life. And that's how he trained me to play baseball. You will either get better at baseball, son, or you will die. So if I fall down in center field, it's on me, pal. I'm like Leonardo DiCaprio on The Revenant. No one's coming to get me. I'm more likely to get eaten by a bear than my dad walking his happy ass out to center field to pick me up. I finally make it to the S10, right? It doesn't even have air conditioning. He's got the windows cracked so he can smoke a cigarette. That's it. You know why? Because he's not hot. <laughs> because he was sitting under a tree drinking a Gatorade out of a glass bottle. He's fully hydrated right now. I get home. I got to mow the yard now. I'm not allowed to go inside, though, because I have to strip naked to do so. But I got to mow the yard, so I can't go in. Right? My mom slides me out a bologna sandwich from the kitchen window. She goes, here's a bologna sandwich. Like a prisoner, man, that's on 23-hour lockdown. And I said, Mom, can I get a drink of water? She says, you're not taking one of my glasses outside. You better get your ass a drink out of that water hose. And so there's me eating a bologna sandwich, drinking water out of a water hose, nearly on the brink of death. I may have dysentery. I'm not sure. And then I got to go mow the yard and weed eat as well. And the weed eater's heavy because the feather light weed eater, it's broken, right? And I don't, I can't use it. So I'm lifting this heavy green weed eater that's half my weight. Well, now it's nearly all my weight because I've just lost 10 pounds because I've sweated it all out. This is the end for me. So D1 training facility for me and my kids, you bet your ass that's a no-go, my friend, because you either get better or you die. All right, listen, this next segment, we're going to keep it old school with the stolen base. All right, I absolutely love the stolen base. I think it's one of the most exciting things in all of sports. Like, do you remember back in the day watching old school baseball, like NBC Game of the Week with like the old school TV technology where they would do the split screen where you would have the pitcher on one side and the runner on the other and there would be the big yellow line in the middle of the TV and it would be so exciting. Like, you know, I'm chugging RC Cola, just like wondering if Vince Coleman's going to steal second base. Is Swan Dunstan going to go for that run? I don't really know. But I got a whole thing of shark bites and cheese balls that are saying, let's get this show on the road. It's just riveting, man. I love the steal. And one of the reasons that made me want to talk about the steal is this season in Major League Baseball, uh, the amount of stolen bases is up. 
which is really fun, right? You've got the San Diego Padres with Fernando Tatis Jr. He's a guy that can run, and he's got power. You know, you're watching him steal second and steal third. That's what you call the Ricky Henderson triple, right? Get your walk, swipe second, and swipe third. It's amazing. And But I love the steal. You know, it's a stolen base is the ultimate showdown in Major League Baseball. You know, you've got the catcher who's got an absolute cannon of an arm. You know, you got, like, in today's game, you got, like, Wilson Contreras, Yadier Molina, or, like, you know, old-school dudes like Benito Santiago. He's got the dangly cross earring, and he's gunning guys out from his knees, right? He doesn't care. And then you got a pitcher who sometimes, like, pitchers would just throw to first base, like, 10 times before they would go home. That's just how it was because there was a mind game between the pitcher and the base stealer, you know? And, like, remember, like, back in the day, they would have the split screen when there would be a runner on first and there would be the big-ass yellow line in the middle of the TV, like if you're watching the NBC game of the week and you would just see the runner and he's taking his lead and he looks like he's just slammed like all of the greenies in the clubhouse. He's crushed them up, put them in his coffee or snorted them or something. I don't really know. And then the pitcher's just running over. They were doing pitch outs. Like I haven't seen a pitch out in probably 20 years, you know? But it's, you know, these stolen bases, man, they're just, stolen bases are a Wild West showdown. You know, back when you would shoot someone for disrespecting your name or spilling your whiskey, you know? And I think, really, the stolen base just amps up competition, right? Steals don't happen a lot anymore. And a lot of that is because of advanced data, right? Like, they say for the steal, to consistently steal and be, you know, successful at it from, like, an advanced data standpoint and it not do your team wrong, you got to be like above 70% to get the stolen base, right? But one of the things that I think that data really doesn't talk about is the competitive edge that a stolen base would give you, right? Like if you've got a runner on first who can actually steal the base, right? He's not bluffing, you know, because every runner takes a lead. But how many times when you watch a baseball game today, do you think the runner's actually going to go? It's not a lot, but if there's a real chance of that guy going to steal a base, you know the pitcher, his concentration is shook up a little bit. You know when you're playing in a baseball game, baseball on the television seems to move slow, but there are a lot of moving parts in a Major League Baseball game, and when you're playing it, it's anything but slow, especially if there's a runner on first and you're the pitcher or a catcher. And if you're the second baseman or the shortstop, because at that point, if there's a runner on first that can actually run and the threat is there, one, it's really fun to watch if you're at home, right? That split screen showing up and I'm, you know, drinking RC Cola and eating some damn cheese balls and it's really good stuff. But also if you're the player on the field, listen, your concentration is completely changed, right? Like I think some of the advanced data says something like, If there's a runner on first and no outs and the runner steals second successfully, you've got a 19% increased chance to score. But if that runner gets thrown out, you have a 26% less chance that you're going to score run that inning. But I don't know if I give a shit because there's not a number that, you know, measures one, what it does to the infielders and the pitcher and the catcher by being distracted by the runner. And two, I feel like if you can really run and steal some bases, it could sway momentum in a baseball game. And I wonder if that's why a lot of teams this year are stealing more, because everything in Major League Baseball is very cyclical. 
And, you know, teams are stealing bases a lot more. And I wonder if that's the case because a lot of that stuff is immeasurable. And if you're playing baseball, you know, to really change the momentum in a game, that's sort of hard, especially with teams these days. And you sort of live and die by the walk and the strikeout and the home run. If, you know, one of those three things doesn't happen, you know, the momentum's really hard to change. But, you know... But I guess, obviously, like, if you got a guy that can hit an opposite field single, like, I watched the Cubs game the other day, and Eric Sogard hit one of the most beautiful opposite field singles, and I don't know if there's anything smoother in all of sports than an opposite field single. Like, it just looks so good. And, you know, with the stolen base in there, if you're looking for a momentum changer, you know, if you got a guy that gets a single or a walk, like, yeah, a walk is one of the three true outcomes, right? But if, you know, there's a single or walk or whatever in that mix and that guy steals second, you know, that's a pretty big momentum shift. Like, think back to the 2004 ALCS with the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Red Sox are down three games to none. Dave Roberts gets on base in, well, I guess the bottom of the ninth. The Red Sox are down, I think, four to three, and he steals second, barely makes it in, right? And think of that. We are like 18, 17 years later, and that's still one of the biggest plays in Major League history because it helped to break a curse. It helped to come back from this 3-0 deficit, but that was one of the things that was just a huge moment. It helped, you know, create this huge momentum change in the game, and I think that's huge. But I do like the idea of manufacturing runs. It seems to like, I, I, I've said this so many times, but if you talk like there's a quarterback that can take over a game, you can have a shooting guard in basketball that can take over a game. But if you got, you know, a fast team, you know, that can really help to take over a game. Like I remember being in Little League and pulling my stirrups high and having my Mizunos on and wanting to steal that base, right? Getting on base and like, you know, my, my old man's at third, right? He's smoking Marlboros. He's about to give me the go sign, you know, because we all know what he's going to do if I get thrown out, right? He's going to make me run laps around the fucking pony field. And I just remember running the bases and getting a chance to steal and being so energized in the game. And that's one of the things I think I also like about the stolen base is it could just really energize the players on the field, you know, because you're just getting to run more and do more. And I think that's a big deal when it comes to momentum, not just like the physical momentum, but like what it could do mentally to a player who gets to maybe be more active on the field because I always felt more energetic when I got a chance to run the bases. And I think that could be huge. But I was going to say one of the um, the – players that I've discovered through the stolen base phase, right? So when you think of stolen bases, right? Ricky Henderson's one of, it's like the guy that comes to mind. You got Ricky Henderson, you got Rock Reigns, Vince Coleman. Like those are probably the three guys that stand out to me that were, you know, the big, like in, like in the eighties, right? Like these big stolen base names. Those are the guys that I think of, but there's like, there are other guys out there that are really tremendous, right? You've got like Ron LaFleur, Omar Marino, Maury Wills. Maury Wills is the guy in the 60s. I think it was like 1962. And he sort of started this trend back of stealing more bases, right? Like you had guys in the dead ball era, like Ty Cobb, who would steal a bunch of bases and he would slide into second, spikes up like he was fucking Liu Kang on Mortal Kombat, man. Like those are some wild slides. There's a picture floating around the internet where 
Ty Cobb is coming into second like a fucking fatality, right? And it doesn't look good because, you know, in the 20s, like, they didn't have the emergency room. So if he spikes you good enough, you might bleed out on the field. I don't really know what would happen. But Maury Wills was this stud of a dude who had this crazy season. Here I have his uh, baseball reference page brought up. Maury Wills is a guy from 1962 who I don't really know much about until this episode. Now, he had an MVP's MVP season in 1962, and he sort of started this stolen base uh, revolution that got us into the 70s where the stolen base, you know, really started, right? You've got the 70s with a lot of good power hitters and a lot of good steals. Like, the 70s is one of the funnest eras for baseball because, you know, managers wanted you to hit for power and steal bases, and you had some guys that could do both, but you really had lineups that, you know, were built to just hit power and run for speed. So if you were going to take teams from different eras and have them play each other, a lot of the 70s teams would be pretty stout because they were balanced when it came to hitting home runs and stealing bases. But listen, this guy, Maury Wilson, 1962, he won the MVP. He had a 347 on base, batted 299, 104 steals. He got caught only 13 times. He walked about as much as he struck out and had 10 triples. Now, listen, I love a triple too, man. I just love speed in the game, but there's nothing better than seeing a player hit a triple and just bust their ass all the way to third. Like, that's a lot of respect because that's a lot of run. He only had 13 doubles and 10 triples. He ended up getting 208 hits on the season as well. So this guy, Maury Wills, man, he's he's a stud of a dude that I never think of when I think of guys that steal bases. Like I said, you got Tim Raines, Vince Coleman. Lou Brock comes to mind because he was the original record setter when it came to the yearly record and then the career record. But I think Maury Wills was the first guy to steal 100 bases. I, I mean, outside of the dead ball air. So that 1962 season was pretty legit. Now, one of the guys that I just mentioned, listen, here's where it gets freaking crazy, right? So Ron LaFleur, like I've heard the name. He was a Detroit Tiger. He was an Expo for a year, and he may have been a White Sox for a year. I don't have his, oh, I do have his baseball reference page brought up. Hold on. Uh, Tigers, Montreal, and Chicago White Sox for the last two years of his career. Ron LaFleur was another type of dude, right? But what's crazy about Ron LaFleur, so he got like a really humble beginning. So anytime I always research baseball players, I want to know where they got started, right? Like you remember me talking about the Negro brothers where their dad worked in a coal mine and learned how to throw the knuckleball from another guy in the coal mine. Like that's stuff I'm really interested in. Because when I think of baseball, like I get really nostalgic and sentimental because I think of my beginnings, right? I really think of my dad and my mom doing a lot of things for me to provide for me, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, that's a big deal. So Ron LaFleur, like his dad, him and, you know, his family moved to Detroit because his dad got a job in a car factory, but his old man was an alcoholic, right? Couldn't find a job. And they were in a really bad part of Detroit, right? So things weren't really good for Ron. And so there was a lot of bad crowd action there. Now, one of the funniest quotes is now a lot of this information I get, you can go to a player's page on Baseball Reference, and there's like a there's a Saber bio for a lot of players, and Ron LaFleur has one, and it is so damn interesting, right? And one of the funniest things about this dude Ron LaFleur, is from when he was a little kid, he liked to steal. And that's right up my alley. Like, if you don't remember me telling the story, it's on one of these podcasts. 
why I got busted for shoplifting from Max Superfoods when I was like four years old. Why I stole like a bunch of quarters out of like the the temporary tattoo and bouncy ball machines because some guy was like getting the change out of him, but he left his post unmanned. So if, yeah, that's how it was, right? So all the quarter machines were like right at the front of the store and yeah, that's where like you would get like your bouncy balls, your NFL and your baseball helmets when they came in the little like plastic bubbles. Those were the days. I had so much fun at the quarter machines. I I loved, dude, I loved going to the grocery store with my mom because that's all it was. It was about getting candy, you know, get some atomic fireballs, get some bouncy balls, some temporary tattoos and get like a football or baseball helmet. To be honest with you, the grocery store by my house always had the football helmet. So I just had all those collected. But there wasn't anything better than a trip to the store. That's where you get like your fruit roll-ups, your shark bites. You got to get your RC Cola, get some Mountain Dew, some cheese balls. It's the best. Dude, I love fucking cheese balls, man. Cheese balls are making a comeback, too. They've got the old school containers back. Dude, I got to eat some of those on my live stream next. But where was I going with this? Oh, so, this, so me shoplifting from the store was basically like, the guy had walked off from his post, and now a four-year-old Quentin just was like, oh, I'm going to steal those fucking quarters. I'm going to steal them all, man, because I always had, when I was a kid, I always wore a jean jacket and cargo-type pants, so I always loved having stuff in my pockets. So I walk up to this machine, and I start stuffing my pockets with quarters, right? Like, if you ever watched the movie Maximum Overdrive, where there's the guy in the arcade? Maximum Overdrive is a phenomenal Stephen King movie from, like, 1985. If you've never watched it, you absolutely have to. It's so damn good. And there's a scene in that movie where the, the arcade machines come alive, and they start spitting out all the quarters, and he's shoving them in his pocket, right? Well, that's how I am. I just can't get enough of these quarters. Because as a kid, you love a quarter. Like, if I was a kid and you were like, hey, Quentin, I'll give you five bucks. I'll give you a $5 bill or, like, 20 quarters. Like, I would take the quarters because I could spin them at Chuck E. Cheese and the quarter machine takes them. Like, what the fuck do I want a $5 bill for? I can't put that to get a bouncy ball, right? Give me the quarters, you idiot. And then also there was, like, a gold watch on one of the machines because he had taken his watch off. So I stole the gold watch. And then I stole a bunch of bubble tape, like loaded up because here's the thing. Like I too stole from a young age and I love stealing bubble tape. Like that was my number one steal was a bubble tape. But this time I got caught because when I got home, I was, I asked my mom to help me put the watch on. And she was like, would you get this watch? And I was like the vending machine. And she's looking at this watch and she's like, this is a gold watch, bro. She's like, you need to get this in the vending machine. And she's like, would you get this watch from? And about that time she noticed the jingle from my pants and because it was weighing me down too. And she's like, wait, hold on. What is all this? So I've got like 50 bucks and quarters on me. And she made me go back to the store and I had to tell them I shoplifted, man. Well, that's sort of how Ron LaFleur was. He said this. He Ron LaFleur said, stealing was my specialty. As far back as I can remember, I was stealing things and getting away with it. He said, every time I went to the store, I'd steal something like a rubber ball or a 10 cent miniature pie, like those hostess pies. Do you remember the hostess pies back in the day? Damn, those suckers were good, right? So that's how Ron LaFleur was, man. You know, he had a dad that was, you know, on the booze a lot and, you know, sort of a rough neighborhood, right? So when Ron LaFleur was like 19, he got mixed up with a couple buddies that were high on heroin and they ended up robbing like a neighborhood bar and they got busted for it, man. Nobody died, but they got tagged for armed robbery and Ron spent like three years in prison for it, right? Now, this is where things get really interesting. So at this point, Ron LaFleur has never played 
organized baseball in his life at all. Not once, just hasn't. But when he gets to the jail, well, hell, they got a baseball league in the prison. So Ron starts playing baseball, right? And he's doing really good. Ron's batting like, listen, when Ron LaFleur was in prison, he took his stats, man. He took his box scores. And Ron said he batted 469 in 1971 and 569 in 1972 in prison league ball. That to me is amazing. I just love how Ron LaFleur took his stats while he was in prison, right? You would think if you were in jail, You'd be doing soul searching or something like that. No, Rod on the floor is like, yo, I hit a double, man. I'm two for two today, <laughs> and I'm batting 569. Let's go. And so, but here's the thing, man. There was an inmate buddy who was friends with Ron who knew a bar owner that knew Billy Martin, right? And so Billy came to the jail to see Ron LaFleur, and I guess at this time, Billy Martin must have been the manager of the Tigers, right? So Billy Martin's the manager of the Tigers at this point. And so, yeah, so let me start that over again because it's really confusing that Billy Martin wasn't a Yankee at this point. But Billy Martin was the manager of the Tigers. So Ron's inmate buddy calls a guy at the bar that knows Billy. Billy drives to the jail on a weekend to see Ron play. And then Billy's like, well, this guy's good. So the jail had like a furlough, like a weekend furlough. And so Billy told Ron, he's like, hey, man, come try out for the team. Like, you come try out for these Tigers, right? You're a hometown kid, and you look good playing prison ball, right? This is where it's at. So they liked him. And the day Ron LaFleur got out of prison, he signed a contract with the Tigers. And that was it. So he goes there immediately. But they sent him to single way, but they had to lie about his age because at this point, Ron was 25. But they were telling everybody that he was 21. I don't really know why they did, but he goes to single A. They lie about his age, which is a very interesting story, you know. And they he gets to single A, and Jim Leland is his first manager. Now, talk about a baseball guy. Jim Leland is that dude. And he gets to single A, fresh out of jail. Ron LaFleur bats 277. He's never played baseball. Then Ron gets to double A and bats 339 with 42 steals. And that's where his specialty comes in, man, because this guy was fast and he could hit for average and he could get some power. Now, they send Ron to triple A, but he only gets to play nine games because Mickey Stanley breaks his hand. And so Ron gets called up to the major leagues now. Now, this is August of 74 that Ron LaFleur gets called up to the Detroit Tigers of Major League Baseball. Listen, he was released from prison in July of 73. He's been out of prison at this point for basically a year. He gets to the Tigers. He bats 260 with 23 steals. This was completely crazy, man. Now, you've got Ron LaFleur. This is the dude, right? This is like a true rags to riches story, man. He's just... I mean, this guy is like a freak gifted athlete, you know? He, the only baseball he's played at this point is prison ball. And in his career, like, he had some power, too. He had 16 homers one year and had 39 steals, hit 12 homers one year and had 68 steals, right? And then in 1980, he led the league as a Montreal Expo with 97 steals. That's the most steals he ever had. This is a guy 
that by the time 1976 came around, he got out of jail at 73. He's been out of jail for three years. He's getting down ballot MVP votes. Ron LaFleur. This is one of the best guys that maybe you haven't heard of. Like I said, I had heard the name, but I didn't know much about the guy. Now, things get even crazier. Now, his first full season was in 1975. Now, I think 75 was the Mark Fidrich season. Now, I don't know if I've ever talked in depth about Mark Fidrich on this podcast, but Mark Fidrich, his rookie season to Detroit was absolutely crazy. He was like the first baseball player on the cover of Rolling Stone. He, he was an absolute rock star. I mean, you talk about Fernando Mania. Listen, the bird was the word. That was the thing they said. Mark Fidrich was that guy. But listen, so Ron... 1975, he starts, this is his first full season now, he starts the season with a 30-game hitting streak. He was batting 392 from April 17th to May 27th. He got 57 hits. That is absolutely crazy. Him, Rusty Staub, and Mark Fidrich, they were all all-stars in 1976. We're on the floor, listen, from 76 to 80, he was an he was an elite elite player in 1976 for you data gurus out there. He had a 5.3 WAR. Then he had three 4.1 and 3.2. This guy was productive, right? At I mean, on offense, like he was just good because this wasn't a guy. Ron Lafleur wasn't a guy that just stole bases, right? He wasn't Billy Hamilton or Vince Coleman, right? If you look at Vince Coleman's numbers with like on base percentage. I mean, he's batting like 250 with like a 300 on base percentage. Listen, Ron LaFleur is getting on base at like a 360, 370 clip with a very high like 128 and 123 OPS his first two seasons, right? Ron LaFleur is not just stealing bases. This man is hitting baseballs with authority. Now, and what's crazy is like Ron was a super streaky hitter too. Again, in 1978, he had a 27-game hitting streak that saw him at 373 from June to October. Man, this is completely crazy, dude. And I don't know if there's another story like this in Major League Baseball. Like, I love, one of the things I love baseball the most is stories that start from humble beginnings. Man, I think it's a wonderful thing to see a human being succeed when nothing in their life has really went well. You know, like, I think every day, like when I record this podcast or I'm at work, like it's like everything's got to be perfect. And if something's off or my daughter's crying or, you know, I did shitty on a project at work or I recorded a crappy podcast, like I'm a little shook by it, right? Like today in our era, like I feel like we expect everything to be perfect. But when we look at our parents, right? Like my mom and my dad were grinders, you know, they would bust their ass at work hard, multitask, like and they never complained, right? And when you see a baseball player player like that, I feel like Ron LaFleur is sort of in that same vein, right? This is a guy who just spent three years in jail, right? He should be pissed off at the world. You know, he knows nothing but stealing bubble tape from grocery stores and robbing, you know, bars or whatever. But he gets out and he just plays hard and does it. And it's, I love seeing baseball players succeed. Like, I think it's one of the reasons why I like baseball so much. It's just this gritty sport that, like I said, you know, the game of baseball looks slow on TV, but it's it's a grueling, really mean monster that's got you out in the summer, July, August. It's hot as shit. And because of the pace of the game, right, like it's a slower game than football. 
in basketball, right? Like, I get that. But because of that, you get, like, this mental aspect of the game. And that's the thing about Ron LaFleur is he had to have all of this mental resilience to come out here and still hit well. And it's just it's unbelievable, like an unbelievable amount of motivation for a guy that, you know, didn't really have much of an example growing up. And I think that's huge. And it's, it's a hell of a story, right? But, you know, things sort of turned down for Ron LaFleur, right? So Sparky Anderson got the job, the Tigers job in 1979. So Billy's out, but he knew that Ron LaFleur was back on drugs, right, in 79. And he was hanging with Riff Raff, man. He's bringing sketchy characters up into the clubhouse. And Sparky's like, what is this guy doing? Like, we got to get this guy out of here. Like, Ron LaFleur is sort of like the Kurt Cobain of the league. Like, he has all this success, but he just sort of can't stay clean. So Sparky's like, well, I got to get Ron out of here because he's not doing good. So I'm going to trade him to the Expos. And because, you know, it was clear that Ron was, you know, riding the white pony and he was shooting up heroin, right? Which is completely crazy because if Ron LaFleur had played in another era, you know, because we we look at drug use a little bit different now where, you know, the team probably would have got him some help. But, you know, the White Sox just sort of traded him off. Now, the Expos had him for a year, and they were sort of in the same boat where they're like, man, we got to get rid of this guy because he's burning the candle at both ends like there's nothing we could do. And even though Ron had this great stealing season in 1980 at 97 stolen bases, which I think 1980 was a hell of a season for stolen bases because I think him and Omar Marino were really going at it all season. And if I if I remember correctly, I think in 1980... I think Omar Marino had like 96 or 91 stolen bases. Like it, it was gritty till the end. But Ron's numbers, his offensive numbers were down, right? So he was getting on base. Like he stole 97 times and only got caught 19 times. But his on-base percentage, his batting average, his slugging, like he only had four home runs, right? Just three years before this, he had 16 home runs. And that's sort of the thing. Like you can't really be on dope and, you know, expect to keep hitting the bat or whatever. So then... That was when the Expos were like, man, we got to get rid of Ron. Like, we can't really do anything with him, you know? So they trade him to the White Sox. And the two years in, you know, in Chicago, he barely plays. He got busted for drugs and guns. And essentially, at that point, his career was done. And that was pretty much it for Ron. Now, Ron's still alive. You know, I think he tried to get into baseball a little bit after you know, his career was over and things like that. But, you know, it didn't, you know, it didn't happen for him. But this uh Ron LaFleur was a hell of a baseball player but and then you know when you look at Ron LaFleur like he's one of those guys where you have to ask like he's sort of a what if story right because in what world does a guy not play baseball get into drugs get arrested for armed robbery and serve three years and walk out onto a major league baseball field and within three years is getting down ballot MVP votes he was a very, very productive major leaguer with speed, with offensive skills, quick hands, hand-eye coordination. Like if this is a kid that grew up playing baseball, I mean, he could be a Hall of Famer. Like, this would be absolutely wild. But, you know, it didn't happen like that. But Ron LaFleur, you know, it's, it's you know, it's a guy we could all appreciate because what he did, I mean, the fact that he had as many productive years as he had, because when he got to the pros, you know, there wasn't, he didn't really get any guidance or anything like that. It was just sort of like, oh, like you could just go play ball. And I mean, he did his best with what he had. And it really is an amazing story. But then two of the other guys I want to talk about real quick. One is Damaso Garcia. Now you've heard, I've mentioned 
Damaso Garcia a lot on this podcast, but a lot of it is just in passing, right? But Damaso Garcia, listen, from 82 to 86, he was one of the American League's best second baseman, and he actually stole a pretty good amount of bags. I want to say like in 1980 or 81, oh, thank goodness I have his baseball reference page brought up too. And, oh, shoot, this is a guy where in 1982, he stole 54 bases. And I think that was third or fourth in the league, you know. And he batted 310 that season, too. You know, 300 batting average is a big deal. But Damaso Garcia is one of those guys where he was a pretty good base stealer in the 80s. You know, he wasn't bumping off 100 steals because he didn't have the on-base percentage to handle that. But, you know, he was a damn good leadoff hitter when he was with the Toronto Blue Jays. And here's the thing. The reason why I want to talk about Damaso Garcia is because there's so many Major League Baseball players that had great seasons, but you don't ever really hear about because they weren't Hall of Famers. Like like Ron LaFleur is one of those guys, and Damaso Garcia is very much one of those guys. He also got down-ballot MVP votes two times in his career, right? So in 1982 and in 1985, right? And he was even fourth in Rookie of the Year voting. So from 80 to 85, I mean, dare I say he was an elite second baseman right now. If you're a second baseman getting some MVP votes, like you've got to be good. And that's just where he was, right? So and with Damaso, he was originally a soccer player, and his home country, which Damaso was from, the Dominican Republic, I think. Let me double check. I don't want to mess it up. Yep. So he was from the Dominican Republic, and he passed away April 15th of 2020, just maybe two or three weeks after Tony Fernandez had passed away. Now, Damaso Garcia was a, such a good second baseman. He helped make his shortstops better. So Damaso Garcia was in charge of helping Alfredo Griffin and Tony Fernandez really refine their positions at second base. At, you know, at shortstop to the point when Damaso's career was almost over, the Atlanta Braves took him in because I think at the time Ron Gant was the second baseman. And I don't remember who the shortstop was for the Atlanta Braves, but Atlanta wanted him to come in to really help their infielders because that's the type of that, that's the type of guy Damaso Garcia was. He he was a hard worker. He knew how to play the infield really well, and teams looked at him in that, right? And if you think a lot of the great players, you know, your favorite players, probably one of those guys that was, you know, a role model type player that you bring in a clubhouse for the intangibles that he offers, and that's what Damaso Garcia was. You know, he really had a lot of intangibles, and what happened with Damaso is his parents were just flat broke. They didn't have any money, and that's sort of when he turned to baseball because, you know, he wanted to play baseball to provide for his family, which I think is such a huge thing. You know, when it comes to being a young kid, we want to do what we want to do. And to walk away from a sport you love, which in his case was soccer, that's a big deal. And that's a big decision for a young guy to make. But that's what it was for him. He said, I need money. Like, that's all. Like, we're not living right now. So with Damaso Garcia, he was playing baseball for a reason, right? He Damaso Garcia was a very intense guy, and that led him to be a little bit misunderstood because people, you know, later in his career after he left Toronto, you know, he was looked at as a troubled player, but that wasn't the case at all, you know. Like, Dom, what got Damaso Garcia initially in hot water was it was his last year in Toronto. So what had happened, Bobby Cox was the manager of the Toronto Blue Jays. Now, Bobby Cox goes to Atlanta, and Jimmy Williams was his third base coach, so Jimmy took the job 
in Toronto. Now, I think it was 1985 or 86. Domiso Garcia was in a really bad slump. Like, he just wasn't hitting shit. So he lit his jersey on fire because he wanted to break out of his slump. So he's like, you know, I love to light stuff on fire. You know my passion for a Zippo in the flame, right? Give me a good lighter and a bottle of Aquanet and a fucking six-pack of Keystone Light. We're going to have a good time, right? So Domiso Garcia, though, he needed to really slay his dragons because he had... He was in a slump, so he burned his jersey, right? Jimmy saw it, and Jimmy was like, he was pissed. He he, he yelled at Damaso Garcia in front of the whole clubhouse for burning his jersey. Meanwhile, Damaso's trying to get better, and what was really bullshit about it is Damaso Garcia was such a grinder of a player and such a role model to the other guys on the team in the infield, and Jimmy comes in here and just lights him up in front of the whole team for burning his jersey, when in all reality... You know, he was just Pedro Serrano before Pedro Serrano was around and was just doing what he had to do to get a hit. And then that's when everything started to go downhill. So, right, he um, ended up getting traded to, oh, I got to look at his baseball reference page again. I don't remember where he got traded to. Oh, no, actually, I think the Blue Jays cut him. And then he ended up taking up with the Atlanta Braves for a little bit in 88 in Montreal in 89. Because after 86, I think in 86, he was playing with a knee injury. Could have been brought on from soccer. I don't know. But he ended up, when he got on with the Braves in Montreal in 88 and 89, it didn't really stick because his knee was just so messed up. You know, I guess the lateral movements at second, plus he was always a soccer player. I don't know. But he really got a raw deal in Toronto with the way they cut him because he was not a troubled player at all. But to rewind a little bit, what I didn't get a chance to say is the Yankees were the original team to sign Damaso Garcia. And when the Yankees signed him, he had only played a total of nine baseball games, right? So he's sort of like Ron LaFleur. Like he just didn't play baseball, but he was just a phenomenal athlete, you know? And you always hear stories about, you know, it's, it's a common misconception that baseball players aren't athletes, but you look at guys like Damaso and Ron LaFleur, and look at these guys just jump on a baseball field and succeed. They're not doing that if they're not good athletes, you know? And Damaso was all of that. He really was. And look at this. I'm going to give you like an example. In 1982, this is how good Damaso was. In 82, he was fourth in the AL with 145 singles, right? So that's a guy that can get a base hit and steal a base, right? That's valuable. You want to manufacture some runs? Listen, Domiso was on these mid-80s Blue Jays teams that were going to the ALCS, right? And they were good. He was second in stolen bases with that 54 in 1982. I would say he was probably, I guess maybe he would have been second to Rock Reigns. I'm not too sure. And he was 10th in the American League in batting average. That's a top 10 hitter. He's fourth in singles and second in steals. It's a good deal. He didn't take many walks, but he was hard to strike out. And he hit for a high average, right? So his on-base percentages would always run about 330. But hell, he'd bat 307. So he was all about hitting, right? And when I look at that on-base percentage, I'm like, well, who gives a shit, man? Like, the, the name of the game is to get a hit and score. He could do all of those things, man, which it was really good. But... One of the most, the unfortunate thing that happened to Damaso Garcia. So he was, his last year was with Montreal in 89. And I think by like 91, he had a brain tumor that they had to remove from his brain. And he 
I don't say it to be funny. I apologize. I just butchered the words. But he had a very severe brain tumor, and so they removed it, I think, in 91, and gave him six months to live. And he lived to April of 2020, right? So you got a gritty guy right here, you know? Like, when I talk about my dad letting his uh, fucking tonsils evaporate, like, that's the Damaso Garcia time. You know what I mean? He's going to yell at you and make you run laps around the pony field. But this was a... Honestly, this was a, a sweetheart of a guy. He was an incredibly hard worker, and, it, you know, he's one of the guys that, like, when Tony Fernandez died, it made big news. When Damaso Garcia died, nobody really talked about it, man. And Damaso, you know, right up there with Ron LaFleur is just one of those good baseball players that, you know, we can really appreciate for, you know, the work ethic. And even, like, when it comes to Ron LaFleur, like, I get the drug thing, but... You know, I've never been addicted to any sort of drugs like that, but, you know, when you come from an environment that that's all you know... And you know, I believe Ron really tried his best to, you know, play play successful baseball and to turn his life around. And you gotta love that sort of thing, you know. And that's why if you ever watch like the Ken Burns documentary or when Bart Giamani talks about it, you know, they always talk about the the parallels of life in major league baseball. And I think with Damaso and, you know, Ron, you really get that. So two damn good baseball players right there that, you know, I would encourage you, you know, get into uh deep in a YouTube hole or something right there. There's some on the floor clips on YouTube and then you, there are tons of Blue Jays games with Damaso playing, man. So it's good stuff. All right, listen, next segment, old school stuff that I saw in baseball this week. I've been making it a point to watch more baseball during the week that's currently happening. Getting into the podcast, I find myself watching a lot of old baseball stuff, but I've been watching some new baseball stuff. One of the things I saw last week, Shohei Otani dropped a bunt. Now, this is on another level right now. Shohei Otani had a game early in this season where he threw the hardest pitch in the Major League Baseball season, hit the hardest ball in the Major League Baseball season. You got a guy that can hit 460-foot bombs and throw 100 miles an hour. Right? There are baseball players all over the league right now that are witnessing this, and they're all talking about it, right? Marcus Stroman the other day was like, this is one of the most amazing things ever. You got a guy that can hit like this. And then he can pitch like this. And then he gets done pitching and he goes out the right field. Like, that's like the most little league thing ever. Like, I remember being a kid and I was like, the littlest kid, like in Mustang ball, where you only played six inning games. Like, I would pitch the first three and catch the last three. And like, Shohei Otani right now is playing Major League Baseball like you would play Little League Baseball. Like, he'll pitch. His six, he'll fight, he'll pitch his five or six innings. He's a little wild right now, so he's not getting deep into games. He'll pitch his five innings, right? Strike out nine guys, you know, throw 100 miles an hour, hit a 450 foot home run. Then when he's done pitching, he'll go out and play right field and keep hitting. And it won't even take the day off. Like, you know, when Otani first came up, like everybody was like, oh, we got to see what the data is. If he pitches, we got to give him a day off. Then if he's going to pitch, we got to give him the day before off. And finally, Joe Madden's like, bro, just go out and play baseball. Like, go drink some hose water and let's play ball. And the guy doesn't even take a day off. Like, he just plays and plays and plays. He had a go-ahead home run around the pesky pole like two weeks ago, and it was wonderful. It was so, so clutch, right? So he does all of these things, and he's also incredibly fast. So they shift him during this game, right? So he's a lefty, so they got him shifted towards second. Drops a bunt against the shift, but the third baseman's not all the way over. So the third baseman charges the ball, but Shohei outruns it. Shohei Otani is sneaky fast, right? If Joe Madden decides to bring the steal back in Anaheim, Shohei's going to hit 30 home runs and swipe 30 bags, right? Right now, Shohei's like second in the league in home runs, but this bunt? 
was just unbelievably incredible. You know, because you got a guy with all these skills. And, like, Shohei Otani, he's my favorite baseball player right now. I've always I always talk about how so incredibly kind he is. You can tell by the way he carries himself. When he interacts with any player from the other team, he's just so nice. Now, normally, like, I wouldn't like that because it's competition. But it's who Shohei Otani is. Like, he's just a sweetheart of a dude. Like, he's very kind. And that's what I like. Like, that's one of the things I try to do in this podcast and on the Instagram page is just be kind and come together with people and have some fucking fun around some old school baseball. But what this guy is doing, it is unreal. Like, he he left Japan baseball early knowing that he would get, wouldn't get paid as much, right? So when he left Japan, he left like two years early, which put a, a very heavy cap on how much money he could make to the point where if he had stayed with his team for a couple more years, he would have cleaned house coming to America. But Shohei was like, no, I want to play on the highest level. Shohei's like, I believe I'm the best player in this Japan league. And I want to go play on the highest level. I don't care how much money I make. Like, because in the scheme, grand scheme of things, I'm going to make $8 million over the next however many years. Like, he's right now going to make $8 million over his next two years. Which, if he had, you know, stayed in Japan another couple more years, he would have signed like a $150, $200 million contract or something. But he's like, I don't care. I want to play baseball. And that's how Joe Madden's treating him. He's like, okay, you can play baseball every day just like a little leaguer. Like, we're good. But for him to drop this bunt, to sacrifice an at-bat and say, I'm going to drop a bunt, listen, people are talking about Otani like he might be the best athlete to ever play baseball. Like, Bo Jackson was great. Eric Davis was great. Barry Bonds was great. This guy throws 100-plus. It's unreal. You got even athletes from other sports like Kevin Durant is tweeting about Shohei Otani, right? And I know that... Fernando Tatis is like like the face of baseball right now. That's a term that's thrown around a lot. Like Fernando Tatis is your guy. He's exciting. He steals. He's edgy. Right. He's got phenomenal hair and swings a very good Victus bat. Right. This guy's the shit. But Otani is getting at athletes from other mainstream sports, football and basketball, are tweeting and talking about this kid Otani. Like what is happening? And you know, Tatis might be the face of the sport, but Otani could be having the biggest impact. He's like this this myth, man, like something that you would only see in a Homer epic. You know, he's in battle alongside Achilles. He's playing baseball to Bo Jackson proportions. Like, I was very young when Bo Jackson and the Bo Nose campaign came out, and everybody loved it because Bo Jackson was doing something that we had never seen before. And that's what Shohei Otani is doing right now. He's doing stuff that nobody's ever seen, and people are taking notice. And he's gonna bring people to the game because he's so exciting to watch. But this opposite, this push bunt to third, I absolutely love that old school mentality of it, man. Because at the end of the day, Otani's not gonna be one thing. He's not a pitcher. He's not a power hitter. He's got, this kid's a ball player. And when Bo Jackson, Bo Jackson said when he dies on his gravestone, he wants to say, here lies a ball player. And damn it, that's what Otani is. Otani is a ball player. Um, other things I saw. I saw Dave Martinez, Nationals manager. Nationals are playing the Cubs. Dave Martinez gets kicked out. Rips second base out of the ground. Thank God. Listen, I love when managers get kicked out of games. Listen, if I was a manager, I would probably get kicked out every like two weeks or something. I mean, every week if I could. But I just love 
managers fighting with umps and then getting kicked out of the game, right? And so many times, though, today's managers, they'll chirp from the dugout, they'll get kicked out, they'll come out, have a few words, and leave, right? No. Dave Martinez comes out, rips the base out of the back, channels his inner Lupinella, right? When Lupinella <laughs> ripped first base out of the ground and heaved it to left to right field, and then he didn't, th- this is what, this is what Lou Pinella said. So, and like, it was 1990, it was the World Series year that Lou Pinella ripped first base out of the ground. And I think like the Reds were like in a seven game losing streak. So the calls weren't going his way. And he's like, well, fuck this, man. I'm going to go out and make something happen. I'm going to go fire up my troops. So Lou rips first base out of the ground. And he said this in the interview because Lou Pinella ripped first base out of the ground, threw it, and then picked it up and threw it again, even further out in right field farther out in right field and they asked Lou they said why'd you pick up the base twice and he goes it was a, it was a bad throw the first time I didn't throw it far enough so he did like a spin like he's throwing his shot put and throws it out in the field now Dave didn't throw it but I give him props for ripping out the bag man because I think like if you expect your team to play 162 games a year and play hard yo as the manager the least you could do is rip a fucking bag out of the ground the least you could do is cuss out an umpire and, you know, have like the, you know, like the spit coming out of your mouth because you're so close to him. I'm not saying spit on him like Robbie Alomar, but you really want to get in his face or a Weaver style and let him know that you're fucking us right now. And Dave did it, man. And, you know, it takes me back to my little league days of just, you know, my old man yelling at me and about to bust my ass. And I'm just like, that's what you want, man. Cause you know, that fired me up, you know, mostly out of fear. <laughs> But, you know, <laughs> Jesus, man, we lived in another time in the 80s, guys. Wow. But um, I, I like that. I like the fact that he ripped the bag out. I assume after he ripped the base out, he went in the clubhouse, do back a six or a high life, smoke some merits, and just, like, watch the game from the clubhouse. Like, I love it. I think the Nationals lost the game, though. But you got to do what you got to do. It's a 162-game season, man. But also, tonight... I'm recording this on uh, it's Sunday night, man, and the Cubs just beat the Cardinals on Sunday night baseball, beat them two to one, and they uh, David Ross got kicked out of the game, and he's chirping from the dugout. You can hear it because it's loud on the TV, and so the ump yells back at him because the ump calls like this low strike on Chris Bryant. Chris Bryant's six six. Chris Bryant is as tall as Michael Jordan. It's completely crazy. So umpire yells at David Ross like you're out. David Ross comes out and goes on an epic swear rant. He's cussing so much at the umpire. And what's funny is he has his mask on too. So he's cussing at the umpire. And his mask is wanting to fall off because he's moving his jaw so much. But in the middle of telling the umpire to go fuck himself, he's like repositioning his mask. So he's like polite and doesn't spit in his face. And I was cracking up over here. But an ESPN was doing their best to bleep out the cuss words, but it just wasn't happening. And you hear clear as day. David Ross looks up and goes, I got my guy right here. He's six foot fucking six, and you're calling this ball that low. And I'm dying, man. And I was just glad to see David Ross, like, and Dave Martinez, right? Like, I'm just glad to see that grittiness back in the game to where, hey, man, like, this is competition. Like, let's play for something, you know? Like, sometimes. I never want to be the guy that's like the get off my lawn type guy, but eh, but we're we live in a nicer society. We're generally nicer to people and prefer to save face and just be more polite. Now, I love Shohei Otani for being a sweetheart because I think it's truly in his nature, but sometimes I think that 
the competition is lost just on being nice to people. And to see Dave Martinez and David Ross come out and basically tell everybody to fuck off, you suck. I'm like, this is great, man, because you can have disagreements like this and, you know, not ruin relationships because this is competition. And I love these heated like exchanges because it lets me know that the competition is still there, right? And they're trying hard. And that's what I love about it. Like there was the, was it last week? The guy, your mean Mercedes, the White Sox were kicking the shit out of the twins, like 15 to four or something like that. And your mean Mercedes comes up to the plate and Williams Astadio, that's like the third baseman for the twins. He's a position player and he's in there pitching. So he gets behind 3-0 on your mean Mercedes and throws your mean like a lob, 40 mile an hour lob. And Yermin hits it to dead center field and just knocks it out of the park. 3-0 pitch. And Tony LaRusa gets pissed at him. He's like, hey, man, you can't do that. And that sparked all of this conversation about the unwritten rules of baseball. Oh, Yermin Mercedes broke an unwritten rule of baseball. And they're, like, making it a thing and defining this as, like, an unwritten rule. And I'm over here in my head like, I just think it's sort of competition, right? Because the next day, a Twins pitcher threw behind your mean Mercedes. And there's this big thing about the unwritten rules of baseball. Let the kids play this and that. And sometimes I feel like that it's not the unwritten rules of baseball that someone's violating or not. But it's just the competition of the game, right? Like if your team's beating my team 15-4 to and you suck a home run off my pitcher... I'm going to throw behind you the next day. And, like, that's just a fact. So, like, I, I think – I don't think your mean Mercedes did anything wrong, and I don't think the Twins pitcher did anything wrong. But I think, like, the baseball media is so obsessed with making a story about all of these unwritten rules. But at the end of the day, I'm like, let the game police itself. Like, this is competition. Just because a Twins pitcher threw behind a guy doesn't mean, like – your mean violated some sort of unwritten rule. Like this is competition. And if I'm in that situation and we're winning 15 to four and the other team keeps piling on runs and hits a home run. Like if I get beat, if my team gets beat that bad, well, I'm generally pissed. And when the next game comes, why am I throwing at your hip or I might go hard into second, right? Because that's what competition is. And if you get your ass kicked that bad by somebody, well, you want to come out the next day and you want to come out fired up, right? People forget that baseball's a physical sport. So I want to come out the next day and, you know, I want to kick your ass. Like, that's what I want to do. That's what Bob Gibson would always say. Bob Gibson said he hated the All-Star game because he didn't want to beat teammates with a bunch of guys that he wanted to kick their ass, right? That's what Bob Gibson wanted to do. So it's like just the mainstream baseball media just making these stories about the unwritten rules and this and that or the other. Like, I don't think it's any of that. I think it's just competition, right? But you got Tony LaRusso's antiquated ass in the dugout who's telling his own, he's condemning his own player to the media. Now, I think that's a no-go. Like, the um, the Padres manager did that shit to Fernando Tatis like last year or the year before for hitting a 3-0 grand slam and, like, I'm just not one for managers, you know, burning their players like that. Because if those roles were reversed and a player showed up, a manager, they would get so pissed, right? And, but, like, you got, like, Tony La Russa showing up, your mean Mercedes, who's, like, 
leading the league in batting average and just socking home runs. Like, this guy's a sensation to the team, and he brings fire, you know? And it's like, I feel like Tony La Russa knows no better, so he feels like he's got to say that was wrong. But at the end of the day, like, you, you what your mean Mercedes did doesn't have to be wrong. And what the Minnesota Twins pitcher did when he threw behind your mean Mercedes doesn't have to be wrong. This is competition, and fights are going to happen, and physical stuff is going to happen. And, like, can't we just let it be? Like, I think all of it is okay. And it happens every baseball season where so-and-so broke the unwritten rules and -and so-and-so threw at a guy. Like, when Tim Anderson flipped his bat two years ago and Brad Keller threw at him and hit him in the hip, and then there's just this debate, you know? Like, you got, like, the goose gossage side that's like, oh, fuck that, I'm going to hit his ass. And then you got, like, the new school side where, like, Fernando Tatis Jr.'s on the MLB show commercial. Like, yeah, we're not going to play this old school way anymore. We're going to have fun. And I'm like, I think they can just have both. Like, people are defining what's right and what's wrong, but this is just competition, right? If I want to hit you in the hip because you kicked our ass the day before, then I'm going to do it. And if you want to charge the mound on me, then do it. And if you want to hit one of my guys, do it. Like, baseball's a physical sport in that nature. Like, if, like, when Tim Anderson got thrown at by Brad Keller or this your mean Mercedes things, it gets so much news. But if there's, like, if someone in the NFL decks a running back or a wide receiver, you don't hear shit about it because it's fine. But for some reason, like throwing a baseball at a hitter and hitting him in the hip, it's like, oh my God, you can't do that. But in every other sport, people get hit, right? Like I remember when Andrew Bynum for the Lakers decked some poor soul on the Utah Jazz that took his shirt off and walked off the court. And I'm like, listen, sports are physical. And I don't think there's any difference you know, hard hitting a wide receiver in the flat than there is putting a fastball in a guy's hip at 98 miles an hour. I just don't think there's a difference. I I think athleticism, I think sports are physical. And in the heat of competition, people are going to fight. So I don't think your mean Mercedes is wrong for hitting a 3-0 pitch. And I don't think the pitcher is wrong for trying to hit him. It's just what it is. And that's sort of how I feel about it. Um, that's all of, I think, the new school stuff I want to talk. Oh, no, I got one other new school thing. Listen to this. We're getting long. I apologize. But last weekend, the Padres played the Cardinals for a three-game set. And I think it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday set because I think they played last week on Sunday Night Baseball. So Tommy Edmond, he's the second baseman for the St. Louis Cardinals. Real dynamite of a kid. Thundercat, dude. He, Tommy Edmonds is a Swiss Tommy Edmond, he's a Swiss Army knife. He can play. He can play any position on the fucking field. I'm not exaggerating any position. I don't know if he can pitch though, but I bet he could catch. And oh, for all I know, he's got a hell of a slider. I really don't know. Tommy Edmond's playing second, right? And you've got Manny Machado on first. So Tommy Edmond ground ball comes to Tommy. Manny's obviously running to second. Tommy is right in the baseline, but. He's about 15 feet from second base. Well, when Tommy gets the ball, Manny's right in front of him or right next to him because Tommy's in the baseline. So about 15 feet before second base, Manny slides and takes out Tommy. And it's like, fuck it, right? He doesn't chase Utley him. He doesn't Hal McCray him. He doesn't forearm shiver him like Albert Bell. He slides into him to break up the double play. 
Now, Twitter was running amok about how this was a dirty play. Now, I'm not a fan of Manny Machado. I I didn't like when he stepped on Jesus Aguilar. I just, you know, I just don't like it. He's Manny Machado is one of those athletes I just love to hate. Like Ryan Braun, I, I hate, hate him. But Manny Machado, I just love to hate him. Like he's a good heel and I love it, right? But everybody on Twitter was like, that's Manny being Manny. He's a, he's a dirtbag of a player and he's a dirty player and I don't like it. But one of the things I don't like in current baseball, again, a lot of people forget baseball's a physical sport. When a ball's hit and a double play is being turned and the second baseman is throwing to first, but the runner's in the baseline, I despise when the runner just hunkers down to let him throw or runs out of the baseline and doesn't make contact with him to let him throw. So what Manny did was what I think you should do. He ruined the play so they couldn't turn a double play. He didn't hit Tommy in the knee. He just got low and tripped him up. That's it. I think the play is fine because, again, I think baseball is allowed to be a physical sport, right? And I know that over the course of the last 10 years, maybe a handful of guys have had like irreparable knee damage, you know? But when it happens to Dustin Pedroia or that poor kid that Chase Utley really fucked up his knee, like because Dustin Pedroia retired because he never recovered from a knee injury because Manny Machado slid into him. And every Red Sox fan would surely have to say that's a dirty play. But, like, I think baseball's a physical sport, man. There are plenty of other sports where, you know, something physical happens to a player and they just never play again, you know? And if if you're a second baseman or you're a shortstop, like, you know, I, I could be wrong, right? I've never played baseball at a major league level and had a 200-plus-pound guy slide into me on the regular while playing second base, but... If you're a second, like sports are physical, and if you're a second baseman, like you got to be ready for that. And I mean, you know, I I think what Manny did was right. I know it was well before the bag, but I think he did it clean. Do I think that he tried to take Dustin Pedroia out in a harmful way? Like I don't know any of his intentions, but I can just really only speak to the one play, and I think it's a fine play. I don't like when runners concede to the double play and just bow out and don't even try. You know, they just walk out of the base path. So to be polite, say, oh, you want to turn a double play? Like, go ahead and do it. I think what Manny did was fine, you know? And maybe I'm wrong. Like, half this stuff, like, I'll change my mind on tomorrow. But I liked the play. I liked the play a lot. I thought it was a good baseball play, you know? But, of course, I don't want to see anyone get injured. Tommy Edmond is a dynamic player. No way, shape, or form would I want him to hurt his knee. It's like what happened to Ray Fossey in the home plate collision with Pete Rose in that all-star game. I know we're trying to preserve the careers of people, but those people that play those positions, they too have to be ready for the body that's coming to him, you know, because you're talking split second decisions going into the plate and stuff like that. I mean, you, you gotta be ready for it, you know, but I'm all for protecting the players though. You know, I'll probably stop ranting about this now because I'm probably just digging myself in a deeper hole that doesn't make any sense. But I, I liked the Manny Machado play. I thought it was a clean play. And I thought it was a smart baseball play. And I liked it because it showed competition and it showed physicality in baseball. That's what I like. 
But I think I think that's it. I'm going to wrap up the podcast. So this is Quentin, The Greatest Show on Dirt. Thank you for tuning in. Um, when I decide to do the giveaway with the Tanner T and the baseball bat, I'll probably just put it on my Instagram. I'll put it all over there, and I'll mention it on here too. But otherwise, I'm on in- all of my social media links or in the description for the podcast, but I think Twitter's greatest on dirt, which I haven't actually used Twitter in a while, but I need to. Here, let me look at this. Instagram is greatest show on dirt. I post funny pictures. I post pictures and tell baseball. I post pictures and tell baseball stories on Instagram. I need to get on Twitter more, and I think my Twitter is just uh, at greatest on dirt. I believe it is Twitter's at greatest on dirt, and if you can find it on Facebook just search greatest show on dirt but you can listen to this podcast anywhere i don't know if you listen to it on itunes but if you have spotify and you like spotify better i'm on spotify too so that's fine but otherwise thanks for listening i really appreciate it this is the first solo episode i've done like in six weeks so if you've made it this far thank you for listening to the podcast and if you want to be on the podcast shoot me an email greatest show on dirt at gmail.com otherwise i'll put that in this description too but have a great week uh, watch some baseball, watch some old school baseball, and go out and hit some baseball. See if you can. Just grab a baseball bat, take some hacks in the front yard, and pee in the front yard while you're at it. <laughs> All right, guys, have a good week. See you. Bye.